right now, the 74th regular session of the United Nations General Assembly comes at a time when there is, uh, you know, a great amount of uh, uncertainty. Uh, as you mentioned, of course, we've got, uh, you know, we've got the tensions which are rising in the Middle East on account of the attacks on Saudi oil facilities and tensions that have escalated between Iran and Saudi Arabia. You, of course, have coupled uh, with that, you also have the you know, increase uh, in rhetoric coming from the United States. It's threatening to escalate the trade war with China. Again, also threatening to intensify sanctions against Iran, ostensibly in regards to the attack. On the other side, you also have, um, as I mentioned, and also, as you mentioned as well, you've got the Brexit, uh, you know, the, which is looming, and uh, it's not clear as of yet whether they're going to be able to push through a deal um, or not, you know, uh, which will not see the UK tumble out, uh, you know, of the European Union. Uh, on the other side, of course, you also have, as you said, uh, you know, this issue of, uh, you know, climate change and, you know, the you know, the climate, uh, the youth conference and the youths who have become increasingly vocal, you know, around the world uh, in making their voices known, uh, you know, in regards to what they, you know, what is perceived to be, you know, unsustainable uh, economic practices, uh, you know, and the need to address those and not just simply pay lip service to them. So you have quite a lot going on. And of course, closer to home, of course, we've seen obviously in the recent weeks, uh, we've had issues regarding xenophobia and, of course, gender-based violence, which, of course, as you have seen from uh, the media, you have seen a number of protests, silent protests taking place within Times Square, you know, protesting gender-based violence. Mm. So we are living, it seems as if we are in the, you know, the class of a very turbulent period. And uh, so this um, General Assembly, uh, you know, comes at a time where all these issues are unfolding and... Um, you know, it's not exactly clear as to, you know, as to whether there are going to be any uh, major decisions or resolutions, you know, to be taken that will actually mm. address mm. some or mm. any of these uh, issues. Yeah. Let me see if we've got Vishwas Sadga. I know we have limited time with him. He has other interviews on this particular matter, but he's a professor at the uh, WITS Department of International Relations. Vishwas, thank you for giving us your time, Professor. Yeah, thank you for having me. As we, we highlighted with uh, Dr. Mutizo Mangiza, the fact that there's so much to cover at uh, this year's uh, um, United Nations General Assembly just to show how divided the world is and how polarized the politics are that we're dealing with right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, there are various fault lines uh, running through the world order today. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we've seen growing inequality across the planet, and that has fed into very precarious societies, and that further registers and expresses itself in some of the ethno-nationalism, uh, if you like, um, some of the neo-fascism that's emerging, uh, and nationalism that's emerging in various countries on our planet right now. Uh, this is a backlash to, to what I would call failed neoliberal globalization uh, on our planet. So that's one fault line that's running through. Uh, the other fault line, of course, is, is a recognition around the climate crisis as a worsening challenge, uh, a global challenge at one level, 
But at another level, as we've entered a one-degree Celsius world, we are beginning to see and experience shocks in national spaces. The UN itself, uh, and the science confirms this, that we are experiencing at least one climate shock per week on planet Earth. And mm-hmm. this ranges from wildfires to hurricanes, typhoons, and mm-hmm. droughts. Uh, and so citizens uh, in various parts of the world are awakened to this challenge more and more. At the same time, if you look at the climate negotiations, and particularly the summit that happened in New York, it's really about deepening national processes, which are very fraught with all kinds of, of complexity. So there were lots of declarations, etc., and we can talk a bit about that. But the bottom line is this, is that governments are going to have to rise to the challenge in national spaces. And there's going to be various conflicts around that. The transitions that are required are large-scale transitions. Uh, they are dramatic changes that have to happen to decarbonize societies, to build adaptive systems, which are complex systems, etc., etc. But all of that is coming to the fore right now, and that does add up to a picture of, of, of chaos, if you like, at one hand, uncertainty on the other hand. Um, yeah. What, what's also interesting is that we're still seeing a persistence from uh, uh, Donald Trump of his denialism around the climate change uh, uh, seriousness and that a particular agenda. And that's really worrying to have a world leader who is uh, really responsible of one of the biggest economies in the world denying what you've said in terms of what we've seen recently. Absolutely. Uh Donald Trump uh, and his administration has turned their back on a global consensus, but also on global climate science. And he has actually accelerated carbon emissions, and he's done this in various ways. On the one hand, he has given a further boost to extraction, uh, the fracking industry, the oil industry, the gas industry, the coal industry in the United States. The United States has massive coal reserves. Uh, So that's been happening. Uh, there's been some pushback in subnational spaces, in some of the states, in some of the cities across the United States that are actually breaking with the, with the Trumpite politics and are trying to take the climate crisis seriously. But the other issue, of course, is the military. The United States military is one of the largest fossil fuel users in the world. It has one of the largest uh, carbon footprints on planet Earth. And the U.S. military has been in a state of war since 2001. This is the longest period of warfare that the United States military has waged. So as, and Trump's military budget is at over $740 billion, one of the largest military budgets you have on planet Earth. And uh, in that context, he is further, if you like, worsening the climate crisis. Uh, I should also add that uh, if you look at the summit, uh, France, for example, an important industrial power in Europe, has declared that its trade agreements will be informed by whether countries have commitments to the Paris Climate Agreement or not. Now, it's going to be very interesting to see how that uh, is expressed in France's relationship with the United States. But there are, if, if you like, there's a beginning, there are beginnings of a consensus to isolate carbon pariahs on planet Earth right now that are mm-hmm. imperiling and jeopardizing all of us. Yeah. What are your thoughts there, Dr. Mutizo Mangiza? The fact that uh, the U.S. seems uh, uh, to actually walk the other way when the world is starting to take this issue of climate change very seriously. Um, it's something that's becoming central to many countries' agenda. 
Well, I think what it represents, Benjamin, is that we are seeing um, what would appear to be at least an interregnum, at least in as far as U.S. leadership is concerned uh, over this issue. Um, we can see, obviously, a marked departure in policy from the approach taken by Donald Trump and his predecessor, Barack Obama. If you could remember, uh, Barack Obama, President, uh, former President Obama, was one of was quite instrumental, of course. Uh, you know, particularly when it came to the, you know, the establishment of you know the you know at least the, laying the framework and the groundwork, you know, that led eventually to the Paris Climate uh, yeah, Accord. Yeah. And of course, we saw President Donald Trump, uh, you know, do the opposite to unilaterally pull out. So I think what it has done, in essence, is that I think it sends out, um, unfortunately, some very. Uh, it sends out, I think, some very extremely concerning and bad messaging. And as far as I can, as far as um, you know, as far as I can tell, I think for one, we also have to take into account other large economies like China that have also had to grapple or that are grappling with this very issue mm. of their own carbon footprints. Now, what sort of message does this send uh, to them that if the United States can unilaterally pull out and that, you know, there's been a concerted effort by other multilateral partners, France, Germany, and other G7 nations, uh, to, you know, to really come to some sort of, to establish some sort of consensus regarding, you know, uh, what is acceptable in as far as, uh, you know, economic development, balancing that, in a sustainable way. Uh, so you can begin to see that that could have serious implications whereby other yeah. states could actually begin to question, well, what, you know, if there are no, you know, political repercussions, so mm. to speak, by not abiding by these protocols, then what is the point? Mm. So I think to that extent, you know, it does, you know, uh, it, you know, it does to that extent jeopardize it because as we know, climate change, uh, you know, is... Um, it's a challenge that is experienced collectively. It's not a challenge that would say it would affect, uh, you know, the U.S. more than it would affect, let's say, Australia, for instance. Mm. I mean, the consequences are global. And so it requires that multilateral effort. It requires everybody to mm. get involved. Mm. So I mm. think that, uh, as I said, it sets a bad precedent, and there's a likelihood that other countries could, you know, create their own justifications for mm. why they should not either commit fully or to meet the, you know, basic agreements, you know, of the Paris climate. All right, let me take a quick break there. And uh, very serious issues that we bring to the forefront, the discussions at the UN General Assembly. I'm going to come back to Kumi Naidu, bring him into the conversation. Uh, He is the Secretary General of Amnesty International, and uh, uh, he's in New York, if I'm not mistaken. So we also have a limited time with him. But let me take a quick break, and then we'll come back to you, Kumi. Catch Channel Africa's reporter Dumelo Zulu as he will be bringing you live updates at the annual Africa for Africa Transformational Leadership Summit in Cape Town. The conference will be held from the 29th of September to the 1st of October at the West Inn Hotel in Cape Town. Be sure not to miss the live interactive interviews with powerful women in the continent. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. We were just together though, on the same line, right pressing into though. 
Hey, 21 minutes past 11 o'clock Central African time. You're with me, Benjamin Mushatama, right here on African Dialogue. We're speaking to Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza from the Department of Politics at the University of the Western Cape. We have Vishwa Sadka, who is a professor at the WITS Department of International Relations. Let's bring in now Kumi Naidu, who is the Secretary General of Amnesty International. Kumi, thank you for joining us. I know we have limited time with you as well. Hi, uh, good morning. Thanks for waking up a little bit early for us. I know that you're also in New York, but it seems like uh, the climate change agenda seems to be very central at the United Nations General Assembly, especially after the harsh words we heard from uh, Greta Thunberg. Um, What what are your thoughts around uh, the agenda setting in this year's UN General Assembly? It seems very pivotal that uh, uh, world leaders get things right this time around. There seems to be an atmosphere fear of urgency? There is uh, certainly an atmosphere of urgency in terms of words. Uh, it remains to be seen whether these words will be turned into action. But basically what happened was in October last year, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of the UN it, um, gave a very shocking um, assessment saying that we've got 12 years to get carbon emissions to peak and start coming down before we're on the road to catastrophic irreversible climate change, basically. And what we are seeing now is that there's an increase of extreme weather events. These days, you don't even need to worry about the science because extreme weather events are telling the story that scientists' warnings are actually not even as serious as things are turning out to be. So essentially we're running out of time and therefore this, uh, I had a meeting with the Secretary General on Wednesday last week and it was very clear that, you know, he agreed that we are, you know, we're not, what we're fighting for here is not to save the planet. It is fighting to save humanity's ability to live on the planet and we are running out of time. There are countries where we already know that there's almost very, very tiny chance that they're going to survive, like small island states in the Pacific. We're seeing African coastal regions uh, being impacted and so on. And, you know, Cyclone die, for example, uh, and its impact is the kind of thing that the scientists want us about. So we're seeing agriculture being disrupted by rainfall patterns uh, and so on in Africa. So... The problem of climate change is not something that's going to eat us in the future. It's something that's here, yeah, and it's difficult because we have to change our energy system, our agricultural system, and so on, if we are going to be able to meet the challenge. So, um, interestingly, maybe I'll just say, interestingly, on the climate summit itself, the countries that could speak were only countries that had concrete plans and were following what was said in Paris, so countries that mm-hmm. were heavily co-dependent, Australia, Japan, US, South Africa were actually not given, uh, you know, uh, a platform show. because mm-hmm. of lack of progress. Mm. All right. And in terms of all these other polarizing issues as well, I mean, we're talking about the migration 
a pro problem on 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 in the world um uh, kumi and also we've got issues or that are polarizing us in terms of uh, what what we saw in terms of the tensions between iran and the united states uh, recently there also there's also that brexit issue that's also making this um, gathering a very complex one absolutely i mean i you know some of us describe the current moment we're in globally is the moment of global moral panic, which is characterized by uh, four trends. One is deepening inequality between rich and poor. Two, rising xenophobia. Three, um, um, the question of uh, the existential threat of climate change. And four, we're seeing the rise of authoritarian leaders. I mean, um, we're talking not just Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. It's, um, you know, Duterte in Philippines, Orban in Hungary, and so on. So we are seeing uh, the Mm -hmm. kind of practices that we never saw. I mean, you know, just look at what came out of... uh, United States and then the latest revelations on Donald Trump mm. uh, and his uh, conversations with Ukraine, trying to mm. get them to interfere in the next elections and so on. So the world is in a very, very precarious situation right now. And I think that one of the things that is very interesting as a trend is we're seeing young children um, all over the world, including in countries in Africa, getting organized and saying, you know, our future is at stake, adults, political and business leaders mm. must make the tough decisions and so on. So so within that context, um, there's been, of course, lots of bilateral conversations on the side mm. in terms of Iran. The Iran-U.S. Um, conflict, which uh, is being obviously um, used for domestic political purposes. I mean, mm. the Iran nuclear deal was negotiated with extreme, you know, difficulty and mm-hmm. and President Trump's in, uh, inclination. Not only is quite a few is to move away from what people call multilateralism, which means how do countries collectively sort out problems? And sadly, the U.S. has opted to have a very unilateral approach mm-hmm. during much of these uh, UN General Assembly. Mm, let me move that to Vishwa Sadka because I know we have to let him go in the next two minutes. I know you have an interview with another broadcaster, as you mentioned, Vishwas. But where do we start from here? Do you think that our priority should be the, the, the green issue or do we do we start being multidimensional in, in our politics and dealing with all these issues that were elaborated upon yourselves and the other uh, panelists? So, you know, false dichotomies are not going to help us here. We can address inequality and we can address the climate crisis together. There's enough thinking, hard thinking around this issue. For over 20 years, despite the science and despite the attempts to have a multilateral agreement, world leaders have been failing us on the climate problem, including inequality. Um, we, we're now at a moment where the science is underlining the urgency. Uh, it's drawing attention to the worsening problem and we're having declarations. What's going to happen, in my view, is that we are increasingly going to see uh, arguments, and I've made this argument for a hard law approach, 
where we tackle the fossil fuel corporations head-on in the multilateral process. But more than that, we are going to see national politics shaping the direction around these problems. Well, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time there, uh, Vishwas. That was Vishwas Sadka, who is uh, an associate professor at the WITS uh, Department of International Relations. We're also speaking to Kumi Naidu, Secretary General of Amnesty International. Also, Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza, still there on the line from the Department of Politics at the University of the Western Cape. Let me take a quick break, and then I'll be back with you after this, and I'm going to wrap it up with Kumi Naidu and also uh, continue the conversation with Dr. Shingai Mutizwa Mangiza. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Yeah, thank you for joining us right here on Channel Africa. This is where you get the African perspective. Remember, we're on DSTV Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. And uh, if you're listening to us uh, online on www.channelafrica.co.za, thank you for joining us there on that particular platform as well. I'm speaking to Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza from the University of the Western Cape. Kumi Naidu is joining us from Amnesty International. Uh, Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza, approach. It seems like uh, before we let him go, that was Vishwas Sadkai was saying that these issues can be dealt with on a multi-dimensional uh, manner. You can't just deal with one issue uh, because uh, we are at that point whereby uh, there's a, a lot of pressure on the ground. Oh, yes, most definitely. I, uh, I agree with uh, the professor. And if you actually take into consideration what the actual theme uh, is at the, this year's UNGA. I mean, the theme is actually called Galvanizing Multilateral Efforts of Poverty, Eradication, Quality Education, Climate Action, and Inclusion. I think that theme itself actually, in many ways, speaks to uh, this need to approach it in a very multifaceted way. I mean, we know the link that uh, is there between um, you know, uh, poverty eradication and quality education uh, we know the links again further to that in terms of economic development or economic um, you know, economic activities with uh, climate change. This idea that you know uh, we need to obviously combine our you know uh, our efforts in in diverse ways uh, in order to reach solutions. I mean, if you actually think about the sustainable development goals mm-hmm. uh, by their very nature. Um, they tend to encapsulate various mm-hmm. uh, spheres, mm-hmm. right? Uh, all the way from actually dealing with climate change, all the way to actually dealing with issues of uh, poverty eradication. How do you do it in a sustainable way, in mm-hmm. a way that actually uh, does not, you know, uh, leave harm, 
you know, or destination to the environment in its wake. So I think very much the the pattern and the you know has been established. I think mm-hmm. perhaps what the biggest uh, you know the biggest challenge is mm-hmm. is that at the political level, mm-hmm. I think there's a need to you know to report that consensus. Mm. So, as you said, there's a need for leaders, you know, not, mm. not just the United States, but I think other leaders, uh, you know, around the world. I mean, if you take, for example, the comments by the Brazilian president, uh, mm. Bolsonaro, I mean, he pretty much denied the, you know, the challenge or, you know, that the, you know, the, you know that Brazil is facing, particularly as it concerns the Amazon. And you realize that this, you know, this cannot be dealt with. You know, uh, alone by Brazil, this is a global. You know, this is a global challenge. If we have to consider mm. the Amazon as the lungs of the earth, so to speak. So, mm. whether it's a case of capacity or whatnot, the fact of the matter is, I think, is that we're going to have to. We're going to need dynamic solutions, and mm. if it means linking, you know, issues of climate change to issues that are more, more important to mm. other states, for instance, their own developmental needs and whatnot, then, then that needs to be done. So, I think yes. The frameworks are certainly there. The templates are certainly there. But what I think, as I said, is yeah. consensus and the, you know this idea of um, you know forging mm. you know uh, this political will amongst yeah. you know uh, the leaders. You know, uh, sure. And I want to give um, Kumi his final statement before we let him go, because as you highlighted when you started your. Um, assertions on this program was the fact that yes there is kind of an insurgency when it comes to the words but there is also a credibility shortage when it comes to the United Nations General Assembly whereby there's a lot of talk but little do here. Uh, What are your final sentiments? How can we avoid that from now on? Um, I think we have to ensure that we mobilize the greatest public opinion to put pressure on our leaders to act as fast as the situation calls for. Um, the reality, you know, is that this is, you know, quite often as we say, save the planet, save the environment and so on, uh, we have to understand that uh, what is at stake here is whether we can secure our children and their children's future and what is needed is quite a significant rethink of our economy, our um, agriculture system, our energy system in particular, which means we have to move rapidly off dirty energy like coal, oil, gas, uh, and so on, and to move to solar, wind, biomass, and so on. Now, the good news is mm. that even though we are running out of time, mm. the Technology is now available, it's getting cheaper and so on for us to make this transition. And the key issue here that is at the center of this debate is, is it a question of simply shifting from, say, coal to solar or coal to wind? Or is it also about thinking about our economic system as a whole, because the current economic system globally has driven us to the problem of overconsumption and uh, what we have now with inequality, pushing environmental boundaries and so on. So if you look at the response of governments and uh, corporations to the global financial crisis in um, 2008, all of 
the response was about system recovery, system protection, and system maintenance. But what we really need now is system redesign, system innovation, and system transformation. And given that we've dragged our feet for so long on addressing the dangers that the science has been warning us, we have to move extremely fast given the timeline of basically 10 years that we've got to make major changes. So for us in the developing world, uh, for people in the global south, uh, countries who did not uh, uh, you know, contribute mainly, primarily to uh, the problem of uh, emissions. South Africa is the exception, by the way. If you take Africa, Africa as a continent has contributed very minimally to the problem of climate change in terms of carbon emissions. But because of the, of the apartheid economy was built so heavily on coal, um, South Africa is a major emitter. So South Africa has to do something mm-hmm. much more substantial, uh, but the good news is if we move quickly, make these transitions in a way that is smart, we could have a jobs revolution in terms of creating new jobs in a new uh, green, inclusive economy and so on. And let's hope that the UN system itself, which is dominated by a handful of countries uh, in reality, and the General Assembly's powers, sadly, is much less than the power of the Security Council Hmm. you know, where they have uh, domination. So for organizations like Amnesty, while we put pressure on the UN system and so on, we don't put all our eggs Hmm. in the UN basket Hmm. to find other ways, including, for example, going directly after corporations. So one of the things that is coming out of this General Assembly for Civil Society is that we are going to put much more pressure on banks, on uh, pension funds, on other financial instruments that lends money to companies that engage in climate-negative activities. So we will be putting, not simply campaigning against oil, coal, and gas companies, for example, we're going to go after the banks to try and shut the flow of capital at source. So those are some of the things that are coming out. I think for civil society, while we are anxious about running out of time, on the positive side, we have never had such a level of global awareness not only on the threat of climate, but also on the fact that we cannot have the level of inequality that we have in the world, and we need to look at our economic system in a much more bolder way. Well, thank you so much, Kumi, for giving us your time. You've been a champ. You've woken up early there in New York, so I know there's a huge time difference. So thank you for that. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Sure. Well, I'm going to stay. Sure, I'm going to stay with you, Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza. Let me take a quick break. Maybe we'll speak about just to wrap up the show. I want to get your thoughts as well on the issue of the global South and Africa's response to this particular gathering, because we've got problems of our own that we also need to reposition ourselves as a continent. It's uh, 41 minutes past 11 o'clock. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back just to wrap it up with uh, Dr. Mutizo Mangiza. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. 
what uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. All right, let's wrap it up with you, Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza. Your, your final sentiments on Africa's position, as was highlighted by Kumi Naidu there, that even South Africa didn't have a chance to get a platform to speak on the issue of uh, uh, the climate change agenda because we haven't done much when it comes to our uh, greenhouse emissions here, uh, green gas emissions in South Africa. Uh, what, what are your thoughts around South Africa and Africa's position when it comes to these matters? especially also our own domestic uh, uh, politics in the, in, on, on the continent? Yes. Um, I think for a long time, Africa's position on it has been uh, rather, I suppose, gone in some ways against the grain. You see, mm-hmm. what we usually talk about when we... Or the, one of the things that used to be discussed, you know, uh, very often at these gatherings, you know, whether it was in Rio 1992 or Rio Plus... Uh, was this idea that you had what was known as green environmentalism and red environmentalism. Now, essentially, this notion was this idea that green environmentalism speaks to is this call that all states, regardless of their economic standing or levels of development, must adhere or commit fully, you know, to eradicating or, you know, and phasing out, you know, the use of uh, fossil fuels and, uh, you know, as a central plank of their economic development strategies. Whereas for us, the, on the other side, the global south, there was always this argument that, well, since we, as the emerging economies, uh, had in as far as our footprint, our global carbon footprint, you know, in terms of actually uh, creating the prevailing climate, you know, crisis, given that it has actually been rather minimal, that we should not also at, at the same time be expected, you know, to shoulder the burdens. You know, we are absorbing the costs, but at the same time being deprived, you know, the opportunity to develop, you know, uh, you know, in a way uh, or to, you know, be in charge of our own develop, developmental initiatives. So we've always kind of sort of been at loggerheads with what you'd call as the predominant uh, notion. And um, it's, it, you know, of course, it, it you know, it, it was valid, of course, uh, previously. Um, but, of course, given the fact that what we are beginning to see now, for instance, if we can think about, uh, you know, Hurricane Idai, which, you know, really wreaked havoc you know, along the coastline, you know, of Mozambique, one thing that's clear is that, mm-hmm. you know, no nation will be spared of the ravages of uh, climate change. Mm-hmm. So I think slowly... You know, slowly, you know, African leaders are coming around to this idea that something needs to be done. Mm -hmm. However, of course, part of the challenge is the fact that a lot of our economies still uh, rely on, you know, are still primary commodity economies. By that, I mean, we still, you know, develop, you know, or derive the the bulk of our GNP through the export of uh, these raw materials. Mm -hmm. I mean... South Africa, as you said, we are still largely a coal-based economy. I mean, mm-hmm. generating a lot of our uh, electricity, you know, for mm-hmm. ESCOM through actually through diesel and through the use exploitation of coal. 
So I think there is, you know, there is a need, obviously, to to transition away from that. Um, of course, there was politics, you know, with regards to that, as you rightly mentioned. Of course, there's the issue of the nuclear deal uh, that came up and how that prefigured in terms of South Africa's own energy security. But um, broadly speaking, um, I think, you know, they, they re- you know they, they, these are the sort of things, you know, these are the sort of questions, hard questions that sure, I think most sure. African countries are have going to, deal to, with. Have, sure, to sure. have to deal with. And, um, yeah. you know, there are no easy fixes, sure. uh, you know, to, to these sorts of questions. And I suppose if, you know, the multilateral institutions such as the IMF and the World mm. Bank of course, were to provide some sort of subsidies, yeah. you know, uh, or assistance, at least in the way of actually helping African economies transition towards that, then I think that would, uh, you know, to a great extent, okay. you know, encourage yeah. countries yeah. to diversify, yeah. you know, and... Um, yeah. yeah. Yo, let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Dr. Shingai Mutizwa Mangiza, for giving us your time. We always appreciate having you on our program. Thank you for your time. No, it's a pleasure. Well, let's quickly move on and get our business news. Uh, We've got Tracy Boomgaard standing by.